The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get right to our next guest, Sampath Somia Orion. Chief Revenue Officer from Verizon joins us. Sampath, thanks so much for joining us here. Huge global company, Verizon, business consumer. How has your business changed in the last two years? Hey, good morning, everyone. Look, it's been a good time for us, you know, as networks become even more important as people work from home, remote work is more prevalent, networks and what we offer becomes really important. And for us, it's also where we are launching 5G. You know, we are right now at the cusp of kind of our second phase of the 5G era, where we turn on our C-band network in a few weeks' time. So it's, it's, it's just a great time to be in this business. So you are the chief revenue officer. I don't know how deep into the tech you are, but you have to have some... Um, view on the safety of 5G. All of a sudden, for the first time last week, I'm hearing that it's capable of messing with airplanes' altitude sensors and maybe would make landing dangerous. To me, it's pretty binary. Either it's dangerous or it's not. What's the deal? It's not dangerous. Look, safety is our utmost important to us, and it's kind of number one in what we do. All uh, we There are 40 countries around the world that have 5G networks in the same C-band that we operate in. You know, planes take off, planes land there really well. Uh, one of the countries is France. You know, American planes go in and get out there. Uh, what we are proposing is uh, kind of a similar approach to what's there in France, where we kind of have an exclusionary zone just outside the airports where we have lower power levels, so there's no interference. That way, you know, we give the FAA and the FCC six months to work this out. But we feel very confident and we just can't wait to launch the network. I mean, even if you didn't have that Sampath, what if you had the strongest, most powerful 5G signals right up the tower? Um, would it interfere with, a I mean, aren't the bandwidths different? Isn't, isn't there someone who made sure that this is a different part of the frequency before they sold you um, this bundle? Yeah, exactly. Look, you know, we spent $53 billion for it. Uh, and look, the laws of physics are the same, either in the United States or in France or any of the 40 other countries. In fact, in the U.S., the guard band or kind of the protection band between the spectrum we use and then the spectrum the airlines use is one of the largest in the world. So there are two different spectrums. We have a very large guard band. And with us, you know, lowering power levels and other technical things around airports, we see absolutely no risk. So, Sampath, give us a sense at Verizon. Again, a huge company. Um, how, what's, a, are you know, managing through the pandemic, how has Verizon done it? How has Verizon adapted? 
a couple of things. You know, one, we have to balance out four of our stakeholders, you know, whether it's employees, customers, shareholders, and broader society. So just having that balance has been a good framework for us to get through. Uh, second is, look, personal safety is important for our teams, but we also realize that the service we operate, networks, is kind of the backbone of the global economy today. It's the rails on which most of the economy runs on. So for us, it's been a careful balance of the four stakeholders as well as ensuring that our networks are up and running at the same time. Now, it's also the same time we decided to you know, deploy 5G more broadly. Uh, actually, it's been a little faster than what we had planned because our construction has not stopped. We've moved deployed faster. So, you know, a little bit of good and bad, but overall, just uh, a great time to be here. The other thing I've noticed um, from the consumer side, people have been using more data than yep. ever on a level that they probably wouldn't have imagined, not just consuming, um, you know, uh, media content like television shows and movies, but they're doing all of their banking online and they're starting their cars with their phones and controlling <laughs> their home HVAC systems with their phones. And, we, you know, this was was forecast to happen, but I don't think anyone expected it to boom all of a sudden happen inside of uh, a period of one year. Um, how is that for you? Are you still offering unlimited data packages? Are people using 40, 50, 60 gigs a month? Yeah, look, people are using a lot of data. As you said, they use it for everything. I wish I could say everything is for great use. My kids use it for a lot more gaming than they need to. But yes, definitely a lot of data consumption that's gone, which is why uh, the 5G network is critical. Because one of the biggest advantages of 5G is you get more throughput and more speed. So we are literally adding a ton, and a ton is a technical term here, a ton of capacity yep. <laughs> in the network. All right, Sampath, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts there. Sampath uh, Somia Anarayan, Chief Revenue Officer for Verizon. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I was just uh, typing out a letter to some of the producers upstairs at the quick take at Bloomberg quick yep. take little pitch for them because I said, you should have me on more. I can talk about cars. And yeah, they were like, yeah, sure. all you want to talk about is cars. But I said, <laughs> look, it's at the center of the economy, probably more so um, that at any time since Henry Ford started his production line, because these vehicles use more and more chips, especially as they produce um more hybrids and EVs than they ever have before. Uh, it's, it's connected to the labor story. It's connected yep. to uh, consumer spending. And it's just amazing. Uh, let's let's focus in on the chips part of it because we have Nakul Dugal. Uh, he is a senior VP and general manager of automotive uh, for Qualcomm right now. And they are, I'm, I'm going to guess the biggest. Nakul, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong. The biggest uh, automotive chip maker in the world? I would like to say we are the fastest growing. Good morning, gentlemen. The fastest growing. All right. I just know because um, I was at the Munich Auto Show. I spent a lot of time at car shows, and um, I noticed so many products there um, from the trucks to the cars to uh, Ducati motorcycles are packing Qualcomm chips. 
Um, and you can't make them fast enough, right? Are you still at a point where uh, your order books are completely full and you just can't ship them quickly enough to the customer? You know, that's right. We've been able to stay ahead of the challenges that the industry has had because we prioritize automotive over our other businesses just because of the complexity of the auto industry. But we consider ourselves, uh, Matt and Paul, in a very fortunate position because, you know, we, uh, I would say, even as far back as a decade ago, uh, made the call that automotive was a very important adjacency for Qualcomm to start to focus on and invest in as this uh, market uh, goes through a significant amount of transformation. And we are seeing a lot of the dividends of the investments we uh, made back then uh, pay out as we look ahead. Now, cool. Maybe you can settle an argument Matt and I were just having literally here in the studio about, you know, I was questioning why are we still having such a pronounced chip shortage on a global scale? Matt says it was, you know, just unprecedented increase in demand across a range of products. I said, no, no, no. I think it's got to come from the supply side that maybe plant closures in Asia. And so this it really came on the supply side. But you, that was so long ago. I know, but I'm just thinking these chip guys have got to figure this thing out. So settle yeah, this think, debate for us. I think there are, there are a few different things going on. You know, I think, first of all, uh, electrification is creating the need for uh, new architectures uh, for vehicles. So there is a lot of focus as you look at the next generation modern car to move towards an architecture that relies on semiconductors much more heavily as it has. As you know, the... The car industry is moving more towards the mobility business, which means you have to be able to have a tremendous amount of software and semiconductors that power that software. Uh, what compounds the complexity is, as we went through COVID, uh, the automotive architecture has relied on a variety of different uh, vintages of semiconductors. As architectures in automotive haven't evolved for a long period of time, there is a dependency on older architectures that use... Uh, semiconductors in lagging process nodes, that's where most of the complexity is, where you've been developing semiconductors on older nodes for a long period of time that that have a lot more complexity to modernize. The complexity is much less when you talk about the next generation nodes. So what we are starting to see is uh, a significant transition towards newer nodes. You can't completely uh, get yourself out of the dependency on older nodes, but a significant faster transition to newer nodes which obviously plays to our advantage. I've noticed some some car makers are just dropping functions completely because they don't have the chips to power them. For example, about 10 years ago, a lot of the car makers started offering the stop-start technology where your motor mm -hmm. switches yep. off at a stoplight. Um, car guys hate it, right, and always try and disable it. Now <laughs> I've noticed some car makers like GM I'm building a truck on their website, and they say, uh, no stop-start feature anymore, so you get $50 back. Are, are, are you going to see more of that, you think, Nakul, or less of that? Are, are we at a point where this is getting better or, we're, or still worse? I think it's an excellent question. I think that's an example of a bit of the dependency on a small microcontroller that uh, is in short supply and is going to be harder to get around. The transition we are seeing, Paul and Matt, is that those types of functions are moving to software. So where you have much higher performance application processors that the auto industry is now embracing, and a function like stop-start can actually be integrated as a software function into that higher-end processor as opposed to rely on a simple 
uh, discrete microcontrollers. So you will start to see examples like this play out, and that functionality gets subsumed into larger application processors that then manage that functionality through software. All right, Nicole, here's the money question. When is this chip shortage going to be uh, addressed here? When are we going to be back to more normalized supply demand? Well, you know, I think it's a complex question because it is a bit different for each automaker. Everybody has a slightly different uh, type of challenge. The smaller automakers are going to be able to get around it faster, especially if they move to newer architectures. Uh, the larger ones that have a lot more complexity, a lot more diversity across their, uh, uh, their portfolio have a lot more dependency on the complexity of the semiconductor crisis. But I would imagine, you know, in the, I think we are, uh, I think towards the end of 22, we should certainly start to see uh, the industry come out of a lot of this complexity on the whole. From our perspective, we've actually been able to uh, stay ahead of this challenge, uh, but clearly we supply a portion of the overall uh, uh, semiconductor portfolio within a vehicle. Nicole, what's the smartest car out there? What's the... What's the coolest, high, highest tech vehicle that you could buy right now? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there are several because we have so many different partners and customers that we work with. But, uh, you know, one thing that we are very proud of is the fact that the strategy that we've laid out over the last five years has now culminated into what we call the Snapdragon Digital Chassis, which is basically enabling automakers with the newest tech, uh, the latest semiconductors and software connected to highly complex ecosystems, whether it's in the autonomous space or in the digital cockpit experience or 5G connectivity, and bringing that together to help automakers make a much larger step up in terms of modernization. We've been working with General Motors for a number of years, for over 20 years, and uh, Mary Barra announced uh, the partnership with us uh, at CES a few days mm -hmm. ago. Uh, we are very proud of the Ultra Cruise work that we've been doing with them, which is a level three door-to-door uh, -door autonomous service. Uh, we made uh, an announcement with uh, BMW yep. back in November on uh, ARAS. Uh, Volvo has been working with us. As oh, yeah. Right. So, you know, difficult to pick uh, one of my favorite customers. I had to try. Dollars. Yep. All right, Nicole. Nicole Nagal, Dugal, Senior VP and General Manager Automotive for Qualcomm. I don't know. They need to get more chips out into the marketplace. That's what their customers are demanding. We'll see how long that plays out. We talked about that deal, Take-Two, again, buying, uh, who are they buying? It's another thing. Take-Two uh, buying Zynga. Zynga, Zynga right. 64% yeah. premium. Uh, $12 billion, $13 billion. Large. Yeah, that's size. I, I didn't know there was that. For Farmville, of, right? I know. For Tough words with friends. It's not even Scrabble. <laughs> it's an also-ran. All right, let's check in with an expert here on this deal, Amin Bensad. He is TMT analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Amin, thanks so much for taking the time here. Is this a good deal? for Take-Two, their stock is trading down. Yeah, I mean, uh, thanks for having me. And I think this is a very good deal for uh, for Take-Two, especially as uh, when you look at uh, the numbers in this deal. Uh, first of all, it looks like this is the largest video game deal uh, uh, ever from m and standpoint. And second of all, Take-Two, uh, previously they had almost 10% uh, of their sales uh, from mobile, and this deal is going to, you know, in the next few years, it's going to uh, push that to over 50% of sales going to mobile. And that's important because mobile is the fastest growing, uh, you know, uh, gaming uh, segment. I just, I find that so hard to believe because... 
I don't know what you can do with mobile. I, I love video games. I have ever since, not Pong, but, you know, Galactica. And uh, all the way through um, Super Mario Brothers with the Nintendo 3 and the... None of the surprises. Uh, the Sega me, up through, you know, now I'm playing Xbox all the time, Call of Duty, and even Red Dead, unfortunately. I hate it, but I play it. Um, what can you do on mobile? There's, I like, aside from Angry Birds, right? What, how can it, it can't even get complex enough. You know, first I would say you actually impressed me earlier when you mentioned ColecoVision, which is, the, you know, one of the oldest gaming consoles even before Atari. So that was good gaming <laughs> knowledge, knowledge there. I didn't even know about that. But from gaming, uh, you know, mobile has been very successful because they don't target gamers. They target uh, a segment in the population called hyper-casual uh, hyper gamers, right? Somebody just plays Candy Vision a little bit, plays some puzzles uh, or some, you know, farm reels or work with friends. And that's why this segment has imploded in the last few years. And especially in Asia, it has been doing really, really well. So really, it's the focus on the hyper-casual, quote-unquote, gamers. That's why there is a huge success in this platform. I also wonder about the lack of gamers. Are we worried that, you know, the world just isn't producing enough young people? We're going to actually read a book. We're, <laughs> we're going to have enough video games for sure, but are there enough consumers for all this content? Yes, absolutely. I mean, think overall, uh, globally, uh, if you include the hyper-casual gamers, there is uh, over 3 billion gamers right now. So it's not going to be the lack of gamers, especially with this new generation. They are basically born in gaming. If you think about Fortnite and other games like that, uh, gaming has become much more mainstream uh, than it used to be back then. And now it's a $180 billion uh, global uh, industry. So... This industry is growing, the user base is growing, so it's not going to be lack of gamers. I think to your point, it's probably the lack of content, and especially during the pandemic, all the major video game makers uh, were impacted by the pandemic, so they they have lower content than they expected. Uh, and talking about this deal here quickly, uh, take two kept delaying uh, news about GTA 6, Grand Theft Auto 6, which is one of the major games uh, being uh, awaited in this industry. And that's why this deal kind of makes sense to, uh, you know, to remove some of the headaches in the top line that this company will be facing. All right. I mean, thanks so much for bringing us up to date on this big deal in the gaming space. I mean, Ben Saad, TMT analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence. Matt, Hang you on, I gotta, to I gotta be... ask, I gotta, I mean, if you're still there, are you a gamer too? Yes, 30 years gaming, which means oh, so I was a baby. I started actually on the Commodore 64 playing Space Taxi and wow. Mule. And yeah. I've noticed a lot of these games are coming back now. You can get them on your phone. That, to me, is an interesting thing that these um, vintage games are coming back. Oh, yes. Like, especially the indie companies, the smaller ones, they make games like that because they don't require a lot of resources. And that's why you see Netflix, even Netflix, getting into that. So, yes, those are coming back because they have a lot of interesting stories there. Very cool. Okay. Paul, you're not a gamer. Of course not. I'm an adult. <laughs> okay. I bet you would like Mule. I'm going to show you Mule during the break, and then we'll see if um, if you can get into it. Because really, it's a market I game. I think I aged out after Atari. How about that? From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The Goldman Sachs that I grew up with and I competed against was investment banking and investment banking. And that was basically in bankers and traders, bankers and traders. But since the great financial Who was running crisis, it then? So John Whitehead? Uh, it might even been like, yeah, probably Corzine for a while there. I mean, going back in the day. Um, but they've always been the big bank, the big trading desk. But really since the great financial crisis, they've been uh, really branching out into more consumer businesses. And I saw in some news there, Goldman adds GM credit cards to its Marcus consumer business. I just shook my head, but uh, I, what happened to my old Goldman Sachs? All right, Shanali Bassick, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us here. She follows the uh, Wall Street beat closely. Goldman's continuing to expand out its consumer business, right, Shelley? Yeah, listen, this is the second big partnership that Goldman is announcing here with General Motors. Of course, we know they had that big relationship with Apple before. What you're seeing here is Goldman start to branch into new places. So card business, to what extent do they have their ambition to launch their own credit card without the co-brand. And also, what does General Motors give them? General Motors already has billions of customers in their own credit card business. So now by partnering with Goldman, the hope is they could really expand on the millions of customers they've been able to amass with Apple. To your point, General Motors was previously an investment banking client, which they then converted uh, now into... What, you're, what, do you not buy it, Matt? Uh, is that... You know what? Grass grows faster than Goldman Sachs' consumer <laughs> business. This has been years in the making, and they seem to have done very little with Apple. I mean, they could take over your life if they wanted to. Apple and Goldman Sachs together, you could do everything. One-stop shop um, from savings to checking to investment, credit card. I mean, you name it. They're just not doing it. Marcus has taken forever to get yes. off the ground, forever and ever and ever and ever. We've been talking about to it since you were products. in high school. To, to add new, that that's not true. I mean, in the I last know. couple I, of years, I'm they have. And remember, these are very highly regulated businesses. To your point, Goldman makes a couple hundred million a quarter on their yeah, but, consumer business. But look whereas, what Revolut and N26. They came out of the gates running, ready to win, picking up customers by the millions. So and far. where are they based? In Europe. Exactly. So it's been a lot harder in the U.S. for the big banks to really get their technology in line, which is what makes these partnerships and these efforts so interesting. They just I need to buy the technology. They already run the government, right? So they don't need to worry <laughs> about regulations. Let's see if the government buys them. Uh, let's, the, the idea of the government allowing Goldman Sachs <laughs> to buy like a Stripe, for example, which is a lot more back-end infrastructure. The biggest payments companies in the U.S., Matt, the biggest tech companies are all back-end <laughs> financial well, companies buying back of credit cards. They're not consumer-facing businesses. All right, we're going to have the Super Bowl this year where? SoFi Stadium in uh, Los Angeles. SoFi is a brand I know. So it's a brand that Goldman Sachs knows. So to Matt's point, I'm almost at the point. Run by a former Sa Goldman Sachs banker. I was going to exactly say, right. Anthony Noto yeah. is right there. And but it's that's only, a $10 billion company. I was going to say, it's only a $10 billion company. 
So you buy that with a couple partners' pocket change, but at least that gets you a brand awareness because I think to Matt's point, one of the things I'm surprised about yeah. is the brand value, the brand awareness of Marcus, I think is still obscure well, to the Well, think about degree. what you can get from it. They just launched investing products. They have had that savings product. This is the year that they're probably going to open a checking account. Once they open that checking account is when they can be a real full-scale bank for consumers in a bigger way. But to your point, they are not that yet by any means. I mean, remember when we all got so excited about the Apple card before it came out? Oh my God, Apple's going to release a credit card. This is going to change finance forever. I got to get one. Do you have an Apple card? Do you have an Apple card? No, nope. neither but one I of you But I use Apple Pay. Neither do anything? I. Of course, we all use Apple Pay, but look, they could just do so much <laughs> I more. I was psyched that I made the, the guys, leap to Apple Pay. Listen. Paying my subway rides with Apple Pay. <laughs> listen, the car business is the harder one too because you have Chase Sapphire, you have Citigroup, the biggest card issuer in the world, York Barclays, you're competing And with they both offer better rewards programs than Apple and Goldman Sachs. Why? Not because it's hard to think of offering a good rewards program. The numbers is, are there. All you have yeah. to do is beat the numbers. And they make a ton on interest rates already. They don't need to worry about the padding. They have that. Well, actually, the interest rates are not making anything off of right now because people are paying back their cards. But this is this is why this is now, into this year, a big deal because people are starting to borrow again at a much bigger scale than they're taking out any other type of loan. And so to get into it now is a good time. But Yes, it is an extraordinarily hard time to get in the card business because people want rewards. They want them in all forms, shapes, and sizes for different products. They want them in crypto sometimes. So if you can't give your client everything, then can you compete in the space is a perfectly legitimate question. All right. I think we're saying basically this isn't a typical Goldman business because it hasn't just got that that traction that you would expect uh, this Goldman effort to do. But we'll see how they continue to invest in it and we'll see how it continues to, to grow into the business. Shanali Basak, thanks for joining us. Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News joining us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.